But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Wimbledon is over. It's done. Back-to-back -back Grand Slams. Like it used to be, the Channel Slam is complete and somebody did it this year. Yes, somebody did. You took you took me off guard there for a second. <laughs> you know, We'll, we'll it, let you s sit with that and see if you can figure it out. Mm -hmm. But there have been many years between Channel Slams, winning Roland Garros and Wimbledon in the same year, and... The big three have all done it, some more than once. See, I thought you were dropping some kind of golden nugget there for folks to figure out. I mean, the, the really obvious one. Yes, Djokovic did it. But I thought you were being cute with, with Krawczyk winning mixed in at both the French Open and Wimbledon. No, that totally slipped my mind. But that's a huge achievement as well. She did it with two different partners. Her partner in Roland Garros was her opponent in the Wimbledon final. Before we get into all of that, a quick note on our merchandise situation. We are going to be launching some text merch like y'all have been clamoring for and that we've wanted to do but were too inept to figure out until now. So by the time you've listened to this, you should head to redbubble.com and search the body serve and you'll find what we are calling our bandwidth collection. It'll be a couple different designs with Venus's famous statement about the ATP, saying that she just does not have the bandwidth. And also, we'll be doing a Wheel and Come Again collection. Interspersed in those two, there's also text designs with In This House We Support Women's Tennis, as well as Multiple Things Can Be True. So there are four options for you to parse through and uh, pick something up if you if you feel so inclined. Before we move on to the tennis, one final editor's note from me with, in particular, the t-shirt designs. I want to make sure that everybody knows that if you're getting a t-shirt, you have the option to have the design printed on either the front or the back of the t-shirt. So if, you know, like me, you don't necessarily want all the attention on the front of your t-shirt, then you can put it on the back. All right. There's no real easy segue here from that to the tennis, is there? So we'll just say that Ash Barty is your Wimbledon champion. Mm -hmm. So the third slam of the year, we actually get totally unsurprising winners. There were clear favorites going in, and the winners were either the number one far and away favorite or really close. Ash Barty cements her status as the number one player for many, many weeks to come by winning her second major and her first Wimbledon title. She's up by something like 2,300 points over number two, Naomi Osaka, right now. And Ash doesn't really have that much more points to defend. Like, mm -hmm. she has done the business in 2021, tour leading four titles from five finals. She was one of the favorites to win at the French Open. That didn't work out for her because of injury. And she comes right back and gets the job done. Not only withstanding the pressure as one of the heavy favorites, withstanding the pressure of folks feeling that she's a, a tenuous number one at best, the pressure of showing up to this tournament in a kit inspired by her idol, Ivan Gulligan Kali, on the 50th anniversary of Yvonne winning this tournament for the first time in 1971. So she had a lot to deal with as well to win this tournament, and she did it. The injury was uh, kind of a mystery going into this tournament. According to her, it was a mystery to her as well. Now, this feels like a slightly apocryphal story where players kind of tell you part of the story, but she claims that her team didn't... Uh, clue her into everything that was going on with the injury. Now, believe that or don't. The point is, she made a pretty quick recovery from bowing out of Roland Garros, 
didn't really seem to be hampered, and uh, did this in her typically methodical way. She lost a set in the first round, lost a set in the final, and that was it. Otherwise, it was straight sets. The final was a great, you know, it was a really interesting match. It wasn't a, a serve fest like you might have expected with these two players. Neither truly dominated for long periods on serve. Well, I mean, Ash dominated to start the match. She won 14 straight points to start that match. Yeah. And at that point, we were sitting here thinking about Rome with Karolina Pliskova. And she told us afterward that she was thinking about Rome at that point. <laughs> like, not again. Surely not. And credit to Karolina. She was able to turn things around. Not only did she get back into that first set a little bit, but she won the second set and forced a third. Yeah. You know, some people are bothered by uh, how placid Carolina is on court. And I admit that it, her demeanor has made it difficult for me to get, like, really invested in her matches. But she must be doing something right. She doesn't show you a lot of the fight, but she was truly fighting in this match and the match before that. Matchups that she, on paper, she shouldn't have won. She should have been outplayed in. She recently fell out of the top 10. And... Maybe that just helped her. It also helped that she did not play Jessica Pagula at this tournament. Her record on, her record on the year is actually not that bad when you take out no. those four losses to Pagula. And she could have faced Pagula at this tournament, but for Samsonova taking her out. Right. Now, what worked in this final, Barty's much derided slice backhand. Mm -hmm. It is so effective because it's not just a bailout shot. It's not... I'm hitting the slice because I can't do anything else. It's purposeful. And especially on this surface where a slice can really hit the ground and fall dead. It worked so well against Carolina. But what is it purposeful for? There's a very specific mm -hmm. reason why she uses it. And we saw it time and again in this tournament and in this final. Where she hits the slice backhand, slice backhand, slice backhand. Till eventually, typically... Three to four shots in, she gets a short ball, and then it's curtains with her forehand. Exactly. If you're lucky, you can uh, elicit an error from your opponent on a slice. But if that fails, Carolina is eventually going to hit a shot that's not that great, or just lands a little bit too short. And so she's pushed to the back of the court, exposed, and the point is over. And also at the back of the court, you're getting bad bounces on those slices at some time, at by, some point. By the end of this tournament, you're getting bad bounces all over the place. If you watch <laughs> right. that men's final, you saw Djokovic and Berrettini lunging and stretching all over the place because the ball was doing whatever the hell it felt like doing. <laughs> I mentioned all the things that Ash withstood and overcame to win this title. Another layer of the context in which she won this tournament was the fact that she did it during NADOC week. NADOC stands for National Aborigines and Islanders Day Observance Committee. Yeah, so if you didn't know, Ash Barty is an indigenous woman. She's of Narigo descent. She is the first indigenous Australian person to win Wimbledon since Yvonne Goulagong became the first in 1971. It's no small thing. I have to say, I enjoyed watching this final. It was drama-filled. It had so much context and history built in. It was riveting. It had ebbs and flows. It had Pliskova overcoming her slow start and showing throughout this entire match just how much she wanted to win this match. You talked about how one of the, the negative check marks against Carolina for a lot of folks is her placid demeanor on court. We saw a lot more of Carolina being into this match than maybe we, we would normally see in previous times. Mm -hmm. You got to see some of her frustration at the slices. You got to see her really dig in in the second set. Ash got a little nervous. Carolina upped her level. And obviously it wasn't enough, but it does show that Pliskova is not done. <laughs> you know, people were talking about the end of her career when she fell out of the top 10 and... Uh, I mean, why can't she string together more results like this? I mean, she was, she, gone sure for on, she was gone for only a couple of weeks, and now she's back. I quipped on Twitter that we were one match away from Sasha Bain 
writing another book, this time in Czech. <laughs> and we have been spared that likelihood mm-hmm. with this result. Whenever somebody wins a Grand Slam title, one of the things that you look for is the reaction. Ash told us before this tournament that this year was the first time that she allowed herself to say out loud that winning Wimbledon was a dream of hers. We saw that borne out in her reaction. It was almost as if she couldn't believe it. It wasn't one of those like drop to the ground, sprawl out, like a, what you call it, like a sand angel, snow (laughs) angel. Uh She just kind of kneeled down with her head in her hands and in in disbelief. Yeah, you know, she was teary. Carolina got a little teary in her speech, which was possibly the most surprising thing that happened all day. And she was laughing while crying and laughing about her crying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's <laughs> It was just who she is in a nutshell. Because she doesn't cry. She said, like, I, I don't cry. I don't understand what's going on here. So I'm going <laughs> to laugh about it. That, that was very endearing. Ash, when asked on court afterward about the significance of winning on the 50th anniversary of Yvonne winning and what it meant to her and etc. All she could muster was, I hope I made her proud. Yeah, and that's really the only part of her speech that she got upset during. Emotional. Right. Don't say upset. Oh, you can't, can you not say upset anymore? You can say upset, but it just gives something else. Okay. Yvonne was interviewed afterward and said, you know, Ash is like a little sister She's part of the family. And clearly there's a lot of love and uh, mentorship between the two. In the semis, we got the one in two seeds on opposite sides. This is the first time since 2009 that the top two seeds reached the semis at Wimbledon. And that was Safina and Serena in a tournament that Serena won. Venus actually beat Safina, I think, one in love in the semis. Uh, But there was also the number eight seed, obviously, Pliskova, and the number 25, But the number 25 is a recent Wimbledon champion, a runner-up in 2016. Winning in Bad Humburg the week prior, the third winningest active player on grass, Mm -hmm. Angelique Kerber. So this (laughs) was a pedigree-filled... I need to get through an episode at some point without saying the word pedigree. It's starting to get on my nerves. This was a, a semifinal with a lot of different looks. Junior Wimbledon winner in Ash Barty. Accomplished on the surface. Plishikova has won in grass before. There was a time when we thought that maybe grass would be a good surface for her to go mm-hmm. deep at a Grand Slam. Kerber, Wimbledon winner, another time finalist. And then Sabalenka, who can play on any surface, it seems. And it was just a matter of time before she had her breakthrough. Right. And, and this was really her huge breakthrough at a major. And with the way she was playing... I really expected her to beat Pliskova, but for Pliskova fans, that match was a pleasant surprise. Huge serving, huge hitting from both women. This is like big babe grass tennis. 14 aces from Pliskova, 18 from Sabalenka, and the stat sheet was remarkably clean. I think Wimbledon is a little conservative in how they count errors. Is that right? I remember hearing that uh, I think Wimbledon assigns fewer unforced errors compared to the other majors, like in similar situations. Still, differentials way in the plus side for both players. Carolina had eight breakpoints in the first set of that match, despite kind of outplaying Arena in the first set, failed to convert them, and didn't let that mess up her vibe at all. In the other semifinal, Barty took care of Kerber in straight sets. Ash won the first set before Kerber wheeled and came again in the second set. (laughs) I believe she was up 5-2 at one point before Ash came back and won the second set as well. And this, to me, I thought this was going to be Ash's most difficult match of the week, or of the two weeks. I wouldn't have been surprised if Kerber made it all the way and won the title, considering her history here. But, uh, I mean, kudos to Barty for figuring this match out in a super undramatic way. Those were the final four players, the final two matches. Last time we were on air, it was right before the very last Manic Monday. Starting next year, there will be play on Middle Sunday at Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. And so in those round of 16 matches, what were the notable things that happened? Kerber took out Goff in straight sets. That was a boss win. 
Yeah, Muchova gets to another Grand Slam quarterfinal. Matching her result from 2019 at Wimbledon as well, making the quarterfinals there. Barty beat Krejcikova in the fourth round, the French Open champion. And Ons Jabeur continued to make history, making her first quarterfinal at Wimbledon by beating Iga Shriantek. The result from that Monday that kind of, oh, it was tough for me, was uh, Madison Keys losing to Golubic in the fourth round. If you recall, I had said that this was a golden opportunity for Madison to have a really deep run at this tournament. Didn't quite work out. In the quarterfinals, Barty beat Tomlanovic in straight sets. That was the first match of the tournament where Barty just looked in complete control. Kerber took out Muhova, Sabalenka took out Jabur, and Pliskova took out Golubic. All those quarterfinal matches, straight sets, with none of the losers winning more than four games in any set. In fact, Jabur is the only one who won six games as a loser in those quarterfinals. Mm. The semis in the final made up for it. Yeah. On the men's side. Well, we got... One, two, three legs of the calendar year Grand Slam down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Novak Djokovic was the presumptive favorite, beats Matteo Berrettini in the final in four sets. That was a lot of pronouncing it you was, were just doing. You know, in honor of Italy winning the Euro and Matteo hopping on the on the bus in the parade. Did you see the parade mm-hmm. through Via del Corso in Rome? Yes. Matteo managed to get from Wimbledon to Wembley to watch the entire game, then got from London to Rome to be part of the parade. I mean, he's having a great two days. Despite losing, I don't think a runner-up has ever had more fun. Well, I don't think a runner-up has scarcely had the chance to get over (laughs) a loss like that so quickly with such built-in entertainment. It is rare. It was perfect timing for him. Before this tournament started, Djokovic and Berrettini were the two favorites. Any other year... Federer would have been the number two favorite to win, but given everything that he was dealing with, all this uncertainty surrounding his health, his lack of match play, his age, it was always going to be a tough ask, maybe even an impossible ask for him to win this tournament, especially if he had to go through Djokovic to do it. Mm -hmm. So we had these two players who were the ones everybody were looking at, and they made it happen. Djokovic, unsurprisingly, and Berrettini... To some degree of surprise. Berrettini, for the most part, did what needed to be done. He beat all the people he was supposed to beat, reached his first Grand Slam final, acquitted himself pretty well, I would say. So in the first set, Djokovic leads 5-2, and it looks like this thing, you know, might be over pretty quickly. Matteo... But but at that time, neither of them was, neither of them was playing particularly well. No, no, but you can see, you've seen... Slam finals where one player's nerves just get the better of them and they can't really get it together. This is a, f- a first for Berrettini. He is obviously proficient on grass, but really, you really had no idea what to expect. And Djokovic is someone who is capable of raising his level on a dime. So then the surprise to a lot of folks was that Berrettini overcame that 5-2 deficit, eventually winning that first set in a tiebreak. Mm-hmm. And at that point, folks are like, what? <laughs> now, I have seen enough of these not to get my hopes up that the underdog is going to beat Djokovic because it so rarely happens. But it gave this match an interesting tenor for a little while because I was thinking like, well, what actually is going on here? Because Djokovic had such a quick start to 5-2. And then Berrettini goes down 1-5 in the second and gets back to 4-5. I'm like, is this really going to happen again? And no, it certainly did not. Djokovic served out that set to love. And from that point on, it was pretty clear where everything was heading. Sure, but Berrettini still gave a good account of himself in this final. He did. Better than than anyone else this tournament. A lot of people remarked for most of the two weeks that Djokovic wasn't really forced to play at a very high level, and I think that stayed true the entire time. It's frustrating to to not see any of these younger guys really take it to him, the way maybe Tsitsipas did in the Roland Garros final. Well, he took it to him for two sets. 
Sure. <laughs> but he got to five sets, at least. To what end? Heartache? Grief? Oh, so you you shouldn't try? You should try, but I mean, I, I just don't know if the takeaway for Tsitsipas is better than the takeaway for Berrettini in this match. <laughs> I think you're overlooking Shapovalov's performance against Djokovic in the semifinals. Because but for playing a few key important moments atrociously, like some of the worst tennis you could hope to play in those moments, Shapovalov was right there with Djokovic for that match. He did not look odd at all. His game held up. He had the firepower. He had the angles, the nerve at net. There was a lot of stuff going well for Shapovalov in that match to the point where you could easily foresee him winning that match against Djokovic. Well, But, but here's the thing, right? He kept it close in sets, but could not win the important points. And how are you going to win a match against Djokovic like that when you buckle that's my right po- at the that's end? That's my point. My point is he put himself in the position to win that match over and over again, but he just didn't do it. <laughs> it was a believable performance from him until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. You said it before. Like A lot of the times when these underdogs play Djokovic, there's a script. There's kind of an understanding amongst the viewer, the player... And Djokovic, all three, that this is how it's going to play out. Yeah. And nobody really believes that it's going to play out any other way. I don't think that that was the case with Shapovalov in that match, which is why it was so distressing to him when he lost. He left the court in tears because he knew he had chances in that match. Yeah, no doubt that he tried his ass off. It's just that Shapovalov is uh, mercurial. He's streaky. And he goes for shots and misses. Like, he's not the player that you would ask to play for your life, for example. No. <laughs> right. But this was absolutely a progression for him. A oh, step yeah. in the right direction. It's just that some of those wild, unbelievably bad moments happened at bad moments for him in this right, match. Right, right. And you're right that for a lot of this tournament, in Djokovic matches, it was like... It's almost as if he said, okay, for the first eight games in the set, we're going to be even, and then I'm going to break you, and then I'm going to serve it out. And it went on and on like that. He has a clear goal. He wants to win the calendar year Grand Slam, possibly the Golden Slam. At 34 years old, it's not easy. What we're seeing with him, I think, is conservation in this quest. Mm -hmm. He knows that his base level, he can hang with everybody from the baseline nobody can hit through him his defense is impeccable so he can buy the spots and he doesn't have to try to break every single service game he doesn't have to be going boom 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 killing himself to try and get this done quickly you know like Mm -hmm. he knows that if he just bides his time and picks his spot his opponent will either give him those chances or capitulate in those moments, or he can raise his level and expend that extra energy in those small bursts to get the job done. Mm. I I think it's very smart. Well, his 70% is better than basically everybody's 100% at this moment, which doesn't say a whole lot for the state of the men's game right now. I feel safe saying that. This is a safe space, right? Why? What? What's what's the pushback? Oh, because, you know, there's going to be haters no matter what. Saying that, what? That doesn't, that it t- that we're taking away from his achievement. It doesn't take away from his achievement. He is so great that his okay wins masters and majors. He is so great that players come onto the court with him expecting to lose. And that's, you know, that's totally fair. It's not like uh, he's done anything wrong. Because he's so good, players are just uh, cowed before they even walk on court. And we've seen it with Roger and with Serena. But the thing is, like, his... With Rafa at the French. Yeah. But his level, the the fact that he, like, strikes fear in people before they even start playing, that's lasted for a full decade, which is so rare. He joins Federer and Nadal with 20 Grand Slam titles in their careers. It's the 2020-20 club. And we could foresee this becoming something like the 
26, 22, 20 club <laughs> at some point. There is an there's an inevitability about where Djokovic is heading in his career, the trajectory of it. And some folks haven't accepted that yet. I think the time has long passed for you to accept that this is where we're headed. Right. I mean, there's a reason that people expected this back when he had 15, 16. He shows no signs of stopping. His chief rivals are one is old and it's unclear if he can string together seven matches. The other is also old, but has lost a step. And the thing is, nobody else seems as singularly motivated by records than he does. Or at least they're not willing to admit it. What is Shapovalov and Berrettini motivated by as far as records when you have none? Oh, okay. Like, but... It's like saying, well, Naomi Osaka, she's motivated to catch Serena at 23. Like, she'd have to win 19 more. Okay, but there are two people who are very close, right? So Roger is is going to see most of his records fall, and he seems to have accepted that. Rafa is still in a position where he can fight for these these all-time records. No, I'm just pushing back at you kind of making this comparison between Novak and what his impetus and motivations are and how that compares to other players. Oh, no, I mean not younger players okay. because they're so far away. If, if you ask me, I think Rafa and Roger have accepted this as well. Like, yeah, probably. I mean, they're they're not stupid. <laughs> you know, like, they, they can see what's going on. Well, maybe not Rafa, though. I mean, I think Rafa can still win at the U.S. Open. He can obviously still win at the French. So many things can happen. That's right? true. Like, you never know. This could be, Djokovic could win six more, or he could win zero more. Or mm-hmm. he could win two more. Like, we have no idea what happens in the future. But it's likely... That I think, he wins multiple. I think where they are, Roger has accepted he's at the end of his career. Yeah. Rafa knows he still has some left. Maybe not that much as far as years left on tour. Novak knows he could probably play three, four years at this level. Right. Especially if these young guys can't figure it out. And again, not to demean the next gen or whatever. They're trying, but... Either mentally or physically, they're not quite there. Are they there skill-wise? Probably, yeah. But, uh, I mean, part of skill is being able to mentally hold those physical gifts together for a whole match to make the correct choices. You may have every shot in the book and stamina to run a marathon, but if you're not making the right decisions, then you're still not winning. Mm -hmm. I just think of the people who have all the tools, who can hit a double-handed backhand, a slice backhand effectively, who aren't weak on either wing, whose serve can hold up, who can play at net, and who has impeccable stamina and defensive skills from the baseline. Yeah, but you that, don't... That's what Djokovic but has. But you don't actually have to be Djokovic to beat him. It's just, it's a matchup thing. You don't have to have all of those sure, tools. Sure, but when you're playing him, Djokovic knows what to exploit, when <laughs> to exploit, when to pick his spots... So you may be doing all fine and dandy for a while, but eventually your backhand's going to break down. You might be doing it well and like keeping in it for a while, but there's a certain level of experience and smarts that goes into the strategy part of it that I think is probably the most lacking part of the younger mm. players. Mm-hmm. And the confidence and the self-assuredness to know that you can keep doing this one thing for hours knowing that it'll pay off. Because it's all just a shot in the dark at this point because right. they haven't done it, you know? I think with experience in these late stages, it's going to come, but tennis fans really, really want to see these guys snatch the tour from the old men. They don't want to see the old men retire and just give it away. Hmm. You know, it's going to be better for men's tennis in the future if there's a real fight for it. Well, we may be seeing something percolating now because we've had... Medvedev, we've had oh, that person, we've had Tsitsipas, we've had Berrettini now make super deep runs. Dominic team is still there somewhere. Mm-hmm. They're players who have now put a cumulative foot forward in, what, four slams in a row now. 
eventually you think that that's going to pay off. Between what, 2017 and 2020, it was still the big three. You know, mm-hmm. that's where the real hopelessness began to to recultivate and metastasize. I think we're kind of like post that period now. And maybe now is where real progress can be made for these young guys. Mm. I do want to say about Berrettini, though, he's long been referred to as Bay Rettini. And that has to do with his looks. With making a Grand Slam final comes added exposure. This past weekend, we saw TikToks being made about him. We saw older folks thirsting over him. We saw people discovering him new for the first time and being drawn to him for his looks. Yeah, it was a real breakthrough in both the tennis and the celebrity world. I had several people text me and say, I didn't realize Mateo was so hot. Mm -hmm. Well, now you do. This has been like of some debate on this show previously. I think I at one point I spoke ill of Matteo's looks, but it was clouded by my view of his calves. Right. So let's let bygones be bygones, if he'll let us. No, I will always maintain that he has one of the most stunningly beautiful faces mm-hmm. in tennis. It was just if you wanted the complete package. Also, I'm not drawn to like super tall men. You know, for a lot okay. of people... The standard is tall, dark, and handsome, which he fits all those criteria, but the tall really does nothing for me. Okay. He did say he works on his calves a lot. Yeah. It's not for lack of trying. I appreciated that he let us know that he's aware of the calf situation (laughs) and that he's trying. Now I feel bad. But my point in bringing this up is the ATP makes no effort to sell sex on tour. No. And this is like men's sport in general. They underestimate how much people who are attracted to men watch sports because of attractive men. It's not the sole reason. No, no, but it definitely helps a lot of people and it brings eyeballs to the game. Yes. I mean, they've had no problem marketing women's tennis as, you know, strength is beautiful and all that. There's a sexual element to it. Men's sports needs to get on the train. Maybe you think that's seedy. I don't know. But look, the point is, specifically with men's tennis, they're in a, approaching a, a point of, of crisis. We just spent, what, 10 minutes talking about where's the next gen, when, where are they coming from, <laughs> who's watching them, blah, blah, blah. What are they doing? Federer has one foot out the door. Nadal and Djokovic are nearing the end of their career. The, the tour has been able to coast on the backs of these three players for two decades. And that is ending. So what are you going to do? Like, this is something that is completely foreseeable and what are the steps that you're taking to bring new eyes to your sport i'm just saying berrettini right now is a prime opportunity i'm not saying he has to go on do like the body issue or anything orkach is another guy who's garnered a lot of tension this week just for being nice (laughs) for for being relatable endearing uh and he did great this week he managed to snap this horrible six-loss streak and made it all the way to the semis, losing to Berrettini, now up to a career-high number 11. But here's another guy who is very standable and seems to be extremely talented. Mm -hmm. And again, this is a tour that has a lot of guys who are decidedly unstandable. (laughs) The ATP has a lot of issues with men who have behaved badly, who are accused of really awful things. And here are these two guys, (laughs) you know, like, do something. Right, right. In doubles, Mektic and Pavic win the title. They were removed from the French Open draw because they both tested positive for COVID-19. They are back and have won their eighth title of the year. From 10 finals. Mm -hmm. Like, this is crazy. This is, I mean, they made the semis in Australia. They've had a stunning run this year. And this is their first year playing together. They're a new partnership this year. And Pavic has been close to the very top of men's doubles for many years now. Has won mixed titles. He just doesn't stop. He's a longtime partner of Gabby Dabrowski at this point. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. women's doubles, Shia Sue and Elisa Mertens beat Kudemirtova and Vesnina in three sets. 
Vesnina is into her second Grand Slam final since returning from having a baby. She made the Roland Garros mixed final with Karatsev. Now this partnership with Kudermatova is excellent. And surprisingly, we found out that the Russian Olympic team will not be pairing the two. They'll both be going, but they'll be playing with different partners in doubles. Mm-hmm. Clearly. I'm going to avoid using the P word here, but clearly. What's the P word? Clearly, the queen of Ayaz is on a different level when it comes to doubles play. But yeah. Did I say that right? I, how did you do it? Aya. Aya! Color me surprised when they called a hindrance and it wasn't against her. It was <laughs> against the crowd. But Xie and Mertens are both expert doubles players at certain, you know, at different points of the match. One of them was the best player on court. She can make such magic at the net and really bail them out of a lot of things. Did you see what she did to save one of those match points in the second set? Yeah, yeah. So Viznina hit a backhand up the line that clipped the top of the net and just trickled over. And she rushed <laughs> to then bop it back and keep them alive. And they eventually won that point to stay in the match. She said, net cord on match point? I'm not worried about it. <laughs> it's Shea's third Wimbledon title. She defends the title that she won in 2019 with Barbara Streetseva. Streetseva is now retired. So she has a new partner at Wimbledon this year in Mertens. And they did the job. It's Shea's fourth slam in doubles overall. Mertens, this is her third slam. She, you know, for a long time was partnered with Sabalenka. They have an incredible team together. Obviously, they won Australia this year. Mertens won one other title. She's the best doubles player of the year so far. In mixed doubles, Skupski and Krawczyk beat Salisbury and Harriet Dart. And as I mentioned before, Krawczyk is coming off the Roland Garros mixed title with Salisbury, faced off against him in the final Wimbledon. Skupski uh, played with Jamie Murray for a long time. And Great Britain got three players, three of their own players, in the final of mixed doubles to go along with Emma Raducanu making the round of 16 in singles. Mm -hmm. What we saw at this tournament is, I'm hoping, building blocks for doubles in the public's eye. I think the more you watch doubles, the more you realize just how incredibly skilled these players are. It requires so much more than what you would need to bring to a singles court. Yeah, and you can really see it when top singles players parachute into doubles and don't do very well because they just don't understand the the tactics that go along with it. Man, it feels like forever ago now that Venus and Nick Kyrgios were thrilling us in round one of mixed doubles. <laughs> and I somehow got over it. it. It didn't linger with me this fortnight. I mm. made peace with it. We're going to run through a bunch of etceteras that happened in week two of Wimbledon. And then also some stuff that was on the agenda for the previous episode that we didn't quite get to. First up, Roger Federer suffering a straight sets loss to Urkacz in the quarterfinals, the third set being a bagel. This was jarring to watch, right? Like, that's Mm -hmm. a a fact. And so immediately in the aftermath of this happening, folks wanted to cremate Federer's career. This always happens, though, with with all players, no matter how revered they are or were, the press or fans or whoever is going to ask, well, are you thinking about retirement? Or go as far as saying, well, you should retire. No, but it went further than that. People were speculating on Twitter, oh, well, I was going to go do this, but I've got to stick around for Federer's press conference. It could be big. Right. As if the great Roger Federer would retire unceremoniously in a press conference. After having suffered a bagel at Wimbledon. Right. <laughs> like, come on. The the perspective here is that Federer was off tour for, what, a year and a half? Having had surgery again on his knee. He's 39, almost 40. You just cannot be expecting him to show up here and win Wimbledon. That's unrealistic under these circumstances. And so when I look back at Federer's Wimbledon... Sure, he may not have had the toughest draw, but this was a good result for him. And I think with a little bit of distance from it, he felt the same way as well. Yep. He said he was pleased with the quarterfinals. 
Felix Auger Aliasim came dangerously close to a ban from the show. It would have been imposed by you. Yeah. Because you're the one who imposes bans. I love how you just like steal my thunder with this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but really, if he were to lose a two sets to love lead against that guy at Wimbledon, <laughs> like that would have been I would have needed a break. Yeah. Like a serious timeout from Felix. But look how tennis plays with our emotions because we were so perilously close to ruin losing a five set match to Alexander Zverev. You said his I name. I said it. Uh, you know, in Harry Potter, they say if you don't use the name, it gives them power about Voldemort. Mm. I think you're giving him too much credit. I think, <laughs> and I think actually, not, you know what? I'm not going to be quoting Harry Potter up in this I think podcast you're quoting, ever again. I think you're quoting Dr. Scholes because he equated that guy with Voldemort. Oh. Or pushed back against the comparison to Voldemort, saying Voldemort was actually a worthy opponent. <laughs> He was successful until he wasn't. Uh, anyway, Felix did beat that guy, making his first Grand Slam quarterfinal in his career. And you could tell on Twitter how many people were just waiting to celebrate Felix. How many people were waiting for this day to come because they wanted it so badly for him. And it was so uplifting. Like it was such, it was one of my most enjoyable moments of the fortnight. Do you know what was uplifting for me? being reacquainted with this wonderful stat that that guy still has yet to beat a top 10 player at a Grand Slam. Like, that is so delicious and so (laughs) absurd at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, for somebody who's carried himself with such cockiness and disdain for people in tennis for so long, at his young age, to be so inept in the second week of a Grand Slam against top players against people you think are your equals, against people who you think you're better than. Like, this is... I just... I swim in it like Scrooge McDuck and his money bin. (laughs) Emma Raducanu, a British player, had scarcely played on the main tour before this grass season, makes the round of 16. You know this is going to be a huge deal in the UK. She plays Isla Tomjanovic and is hampered by... In the match, it wasn't clear what it was. People thought maybe it was a stomach problem, but it turned out that she was experiencing severe anxiety. And when she got treatment, the on-court mics picked up uh, the trainer telling her to breathe. Like, she she was having trouble breathing. Clearly, something was going on. Now, most of the tennis world, I would say, reacted to this with compassion. There were a few loud voices who... Unsurprisingly. Including John McEnroe and the literal worst person in the world, Piers Morgan, had a lot to say about how, well, this, you know, this is sport, just basically buck up and deal with it. And it was just a weird conversation to me because it's not like Emma was asking for special treatment. You know, like, she retired from the match. Uh, She wasn't benefiting from it. It was just a remarkable lack of empathy for what this young woman was going through. Sure, this is part of sport, but that doesn't mean you can't try to understand it. She was clearly in distress. Right. And in that moment where you don't know what is going on, you don't know what this woman is suffering from, this is the decision you take? It makes no sense to me. Like, why is the first reaction to diminish it? Compassion is right there. It's always just a stone's throw away within reach. And folks repeatedly refuse to go that route. Now, I will say, like I said, most of the tennis world and and at least the people that I encounter on tennis Twitter reacted to this incident with understanding and perhaps even experience, which was nice to see. I think there are a lot of folks who have been there who have maybe dealt with it and overcome it and on the other side of it realize how unnatural it is to be expected to overcome it just like that just because it's sports Mm -hmm. for again for other people's entertainment you are expected to suffer physically emotionally mentally just because right uh and i don't envy any young player who's coming up in the uk because they have really the most disgusting most vicious tabloid journalism 
And a lot of times it's not even only the tabloids. No. I mean, it, it just puts such a damper on a wonderful story and moment for this young woman. Yeah. And it was so unnecessary. So I do hope that she sees this tournament as a victory and not something she looks back on with shame or embarrassment. The PTPA was at work before and during this tournament. We talked uh, in our preview that they had written this open letter to the ATP asking them to delay the vote on this 30-year digital rights plan. The ATP responded. The PTPA submitted a list of questions to the ATP, and the ATP actually responded with answers, which I think is the first time they've been... uh, officially recognized by the ATP. Well, the PTPA said as much. Mm -hmm. So this is a big deal, right? Uh, I am going to be honest. I didn't read all the answers. Like, I I didn't have time for that. I will eventually. (laughs) Uh, But this is certainly progress for the organization. It, uh, whether or not the ATP will continue to engage in this way, it certainly gives it a veneer of credibility. Mm -hmm. Also, 30 years is a long time. I don't think any of us really understand what all is being sold here, wrapped up in quote-unquote digital rights plan. Mm-hmm. It's, it was a very reasonable request to, to ask them to delay, to give us a little more information. The ATP for a long time upheld that the PTPA is not essentially not a legitimate bargaining unit uh, and shouldn't be part of this conversation, that the Players' Council was it. Uh, But this is an interesting development for player relations outside of the traditional organizations. Mm. So we'll see how this progresses. The PTPA has made progress. This is a win for them, an absolute win Mm -hmm. for them. The Olympics are coming up. Do you even know without looking at the agenda when they happen? Yeah. uh, It's late July into early August. Oh, wow. Look at you. I mean, that was pretty vague. (laughs) Do I know the exact week? No, I do not. It's the event is being held July 24th to August 1st. I did not know this until I looked it up last night. And I cannot believe that it's starting in less than two weeks. Like that. That's crazy to me. Yeah. But it makes sense because it has to be stuck somewhere in the middle of the hardcore season. This uh, Olympic Games obviously was delayed by a year. And the tennis event has been hit by a few very high-profile withdrawals. Kyrgios, Warinka, Nadal, Shapovalov, Team, Monfils, Serena, Andreescu today. Kenan. Simona Halep. Some of them due to injury. Halep and Stan have suffered injuries that they will not recover in time from. Mm -hmm. Simona Halep has had a rough go of it with this injury because not only was she unable to open up center court as the defending champion at Wimbledon from 2019. She also now does not get to be the flag bearer at the Olympics. This, I mean, this calf injury has caused her a lot of pain. So it was predictable that a lot of players would be withdrawing from this tournament given the uncertainty around COVID, around how many people you're allowed to bring, what you can do once you finally arrive in Japan, and... Tokyo has declared a state of emergency. It's such a weird Olympics. It's weird to even make predictions about it. It's obviously irregular. Mm -hmm. It may feel that there have been a lot of withdrawals. But if you look at the entry list, there is still a lot of top, top players going. Mm -hmm. Well, for now. Yes, for now. We'll see if that changes. Novak says that he's 50-50. After winning Wimbledon, he says he's 50-50 because of the lack of fans and restrictions on the size of his team, and then he cites that he won't be able to bring his stringer. Um, Among other people. (laughs) You know what I have to say about this? This is Liza Minnelli lies. We have heard this before. Novak had a bad result at Roland Garros a few years ago, said, I don't know if I'm going to play grass, and he's won three Wimbledons in a row. He did play grass that year. The most surprising thing about it is that reporters fell for it. I get that impulse. I really do. Mm -hmm. I also think that there are extenuating circumstances to think that Novak is going to take the COVID part of it seriously in his equation. uh, That may be a stretch, but, Mm -hmm. and that's based on historical fact. Yeah. Like that's (laughs) not shade. The point is 
the pandemic has rarely allowed this man to change his plans. Yes. But the fact still remains that the pandemic rages on and is a huge contributing factor to whatever decision folks make. Because bubbles still exist. We may sit here and kind of mock and make fun of him not being able to have his stringer with him. But that may be like a big deal for him. Well, and he also, he can't take his children. Mm -hmm. But we know that Novak is chasing history and the potential to be the first man to win the Golden Slam is not something that I imagine he will cast aside lightly. No, no. But at the same time, look at where this event is. He's 34 years old. We just talked about how he's pacing himself. He has to pace himself within matches. This is a big hindrance to winning the U.S. Open, potentially. It, it could the be. The French Open, Wimbledon, back-to-back so quickly this year. The, the extra week lopped off. And then to, to go travel to then be in a bubble again in Tokyo, a tournament where he hasn't had like the greatest of, of success. Granted, Del Potro isn't there this year. <laughs> he's been his Olympic bugaboo. Mm. Um, I cannot. I can actually see where he would say, you know what? The U.S. Open is more important than well, the Olympics. It is, in, and the the Golden Slam. It is undoubtedly more important. Does he see it that way? I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, I guess we'll see. I would be shocked if he missed either. Okay. The U.S. revealed its Olympic team last week, and we we took it off the agenda last week. But uh, it is it is a far cry from U.S. Olympic teams of yore. Mm-hmm. On the women's side, we've got Brady, Goff, Pagula, Risk. Not a bad team. On the men's side, Tommy Paul, Tiafo, Sandgren, and Giron. Uh, he's not French. I don't know why I pronounced his name that way. I, I don't know either. <laughs> but uh, this men's team, you know, we have one person to really, really root for in Tiafo. But it is, uh, it, they are not sending their best because their best did not want to go. The men's side, their best is not something we want to see regardless, so... <laughs> That's true. Uh, in doubles, we're going to get Melikar and Goff on one team, and Bethany Maddox-Sands and Pagula on the other. I think that team is probably their best chance across all events to medal. I think it's actually Melikar and Goff. Oh, you think so? I do, yeah. Coco oh, well, has... that's true, yeah. Coco is a is an accomplished com- uh, doubles mm-hmm. player now. Yeah. There's also Rajiv Ram and Tiafo. Mm-hmm. Rajiv uh, will forever be detested from some Venus fans because of his mistake late in uh, the last gold medal match in 2016. Mixed doubles. Yes. Yes. There have been some changes made to the fall schedule. The WTA has had to cancel all dates in mainland China and Japan. Meanwhile, the WTA finals in Shenzhen is still under discussion. And so what that has resulted in is an opening for Indian Wells to relocate to the fall. Yeah, I mean, they faced the possibility of being cancelled two years in a row, despite being run by one of the wealthiest men in the literal world. It is a big deal to miss two years in a row, just uh, for for the cachet, for the reputation of the tournament. I mean, when you market yourself as the fifth slam, like, you, don't know, you do not want to be out of people's consciousness mm-hmm. for that long. Because you never know when some other girl is on the come up, ready to all about <laughs> Evie ass. Because, you know, Miami is peering around the corner trying to retake that title. Uh, sure. <laughs> Miami. <laughs> Ooh. Indian Wells will be happening October 4th to 17th. And all fans as well as everybody involved with the tournament, will be required to show proof of vaccination for entry. Except for the players. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just hilarious, because in the press release, they listed, like, everybody. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the people who sweep the floor, that guy who works at Subway, everybody. The taxi drivers. The plants have to be vaccinated. I mean... There, there was one big exemption there. And they said, well, we're going to leave that to the rules put forth by both tours. Let them decide. And so you see here where the non-uniformity of governance in tennis 
it not only creates chaos, but it allows people to pass the buck and say, well, yeah. we don't have to be re- responsible for this because they can be responsible for yeah. that. And it's like, so sue them. Don't sue us, please. Netflix unveiled the long-awaited Naomi Osaka documentary. We knew that she had been followed by a documentary film crew for years at this point. And originally the film... At least a year and a half. Yeah. And the, the film was meant to be debuted before the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Do we know that for sure or did we assume? I, be- I feel like we assumed. Okay. Well, let's say that was that was a pretty firm assumption. And now that makes it even more of a good assumption because now it's being unveiled before the 2021 mm-hmm. Olympics. Within a few days, the doc is going to drop on Netflix. The trailer, you know, as you would expect, is well-produced, is powerful, contains a lot of voiceover by Naomi. And so given the extra time that they had and the crazy events of last year, I think it will probably be a lot more interesting as Naomi has shared more and more of herself publicly since then. I would hope. I hope it's not less interesting because she's more famous and more polished. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Well, I hope that we get to hear what what she was thinking and going through in real time. Like, especially with the the stuff leading up to the U.S. Open, that entire summer where she and Coco Goff really took the reins doing anti-racist work in tennis. Mm-hmm. And in the trailer, there's footage of Naomi uh, filming in Minneapolis at protests. So if you're looking for a sports documentary, this is probably not what you're looking for, because clearly Naomi is talking about something much bigger than sport. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so we we assume now that this documentary was meant to happen last summer. It's happening this summer because of the Olympics. A lot of stuff is happening now with Naomi. Yeah. It's been about a month since all that happened at the French Open, where she ended up withdrawing from the tournament because of the response to her saying that she was not going to be doing press at the French Open. And folks had a lot to say about that. And so now, with all this stuff that we assume was pre-planned already in the calendar, in the schedule, the net effect is a media blitz now for Naomi Osaka heading into the Olympics. And how does that fit in with what she has said for herself in Paris and the media narrative surrounding her since? Right. Because the the film had to have been wrapped before all that stuff happened. I'm sure it was done filming and edited. Maybe they add something at the end. But this entire thing is going to be viewed through the lens of what recently happened. Mm -hmm. So anytime she mentions mental health or anything like that, people are going to understand it from a perspective that we didn't know Mm -hmm. last year. So first up, she makes her re-emergence in a Time Magazine article describing what she went through post-French Open. During the French Open and post-French Open. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Then we get the news about the documentary coming. And folks are wanting to parse and nitpick every single word. Saying that there's a level of inauthenticity about this now. She's not who she says she is, Mm. essentially. So, uh, I mean, it's an opportunity to have a much more interesting conversation about what celebrity is. And what we expect of our athletes rather than who is the real Naomi. Like, that's Mm. not that interesting. But to sit there and think that while Naomi did that at the French Open, all that happened, and then now she's coming with this stuff, that is such bullshit. (laughs) Right, right. As if she went through all that, and then this is all stuff that she's been working on since, and now she's coming back and expects us to welcome this media blitz like nothing happened before. I know this stuff was already in the works, and this is her now probably having to adjust on her feet. Mm. So to me, it's either really, really good timing or really poor timing, depending on how cynical you are, uh, you're going to view it differently. But we will wait to watch it. Yeah. Because um, I'm sure there's a lot to parse through with that. Who knows? It may require an episode on its own. I mean, if we were royal correspondents in the UK, we could review it now without having seen it. That's true. Yeah. We'll close with a bit on the spelling bee. It's one of the most interesting events that happens every year. Like, these kids are absurdly good at what they do. 
and it makes for great theater. Yeah, just the preparation that goes into it and the pressure they're under and the fact that if you make one mistake, your years of prep are over. It's just, it is a lot for 12 and 13 year olds. Zayla Avantgarde won this year. And it wasn't one of those situations where it went into like quadruple overtime. It finished on time and she was such a treat to watch. And you think you're just watching this prodigy speller. And then you learn, not only is she an incredibly gifted speller, she is a prodigy basketballer? Right, like spelling is not even her primary claim to fame. It probably isn't. <laughs> like, she's probably a much better basketball player at, what, 12, 13 years old? Mm-hmm. She has three Guinness World Records. One of them, the most dribbles of six basketballs in a minute. Some ludicrous shit. Mm-hmm. The type of stuff where you watch the video and you're just like, what have like, I done with that's, my life? That's a deep fake. At my big age, what have I done with my life? <laughs> and what makes the spelling bee so interesting to me as well is that I too was a spelling beer at one point. Mm-hmm. And in this particular year where Zaila became the first African-American child to win the spelling bee, Another name kept being brought up, which was Jodian Maxwell, because she was the first black child to win the spelling bee. And she was representing Jamaica at the time. She won the national spelling bee in Jamaica and then went to the Scripps Howard and won it. And that was, I think, what, 99? And a couple of years before Jodian Maxwell won, I had won my school spelling bee in, what, the sixth grade? I would have been 10 or something like that. And winning your school spelling bee, you then go on to the parish finals. In Jamaica, there are 14 parishes. So I went to the I went to one of those parish finals. And then the winners of those 14 parish finals compete against each other to then go to the Scripps Howard. The word that I spelt wrong was mellifluous, which to this day haunts me. It's <laughs> such an easy word to spell wrong. Like, to have gone that far and to lose on that word, like, it's crazy to me, to this day. And for my troubles, I won an Enid Blyton book or, like, a a Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. One of the three. I won. (laughs) (laughs) It was just an awful experience losing. And I came eighth in my parish finals. Another quick story. You know how you you have, like, two years of eligibility for a spelling bee? Mm Mm-hmm. So at my school, you could either do it in grade five or grade six. And I tried in grade five and I failed. But before I failed, I had an even bigger failure. My actual, I guess you would say homeroom teacher, my actual teacher who taught all my subjects in grade five, she was the one who was hosting the spelling bee. And when you won your school spelling bee, she was the one who coached you to go to the parish finals. Her name Mm -hmm. was Mrs. Brown. She was this like five foot tall, rotund, egg-headed woman who was mean, 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 mean. And she had taught my brother. And so she knew how smart my brother was. So she had expectations of how well I would do. So we're doing this elimination, right? This competition. And I get asked to spell the word honor. And I spell it (laughs) H-O-N-O-R. And as soon as she hears me bypass the U to the R, she clears her throat and asked me to repeat because she couldn't hear. Mm. And the look that she gave me made it very clear what I did wrong. And so I corrected myself, but still messed it up eventually and lost. So I had to come back the next year and win the school spelling bee. Okay, listen. If they knocked you out for an alternate correct spelling of honor, that would be ridiculous. Ooh. And you should sue. We were a British colony. Uh, okay. But there are certain things there and are, expectations that come with that. There are two correct spellings to that word. There is the proper length of uniform pant that cannot be too <laughs> short. There is all kinds of racist hair yeah. restrictions. Mm-hmm. There are all these things along with the colonial you that must be present in the word honor. Okay, I mean, meanwhile, my crappy public school did not even have a spelling bee, so I did not have the opportunity. Mm. Anyway, Mrs. Brown was a very mean woman, and years later we heard that she had been run over by a bus. Mm. And um, those, it was probably folklore. Those two facts are unrelated. It might not have happened, but those who heard about it 
were not too stressed about it when it happened. Wow. I think it would be best to stop here <laughs> because clearly we are uh, going into some trauma <laughs> that hasn't been fully <laughs> examined yet. Kudos to Zayla Avantgarde. Remember her name. Look up her social media. Watch her videos. Like this young girl is incredibly talented and so full of joy and one of the best things that happened in the last two weeks. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Find the body serve wherever on the internet. Just type us in. Uh, check out our new merch that's dropping by the time you listen to this episode where you can buy a whole bunch of stuff with the body serve logo as well as some of your favorite sayings. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.